0: For me, fashion is a verb, so it's to fashion.
1: My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis.
0: I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain then you're a fashion decision-maker.
1: Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes, to how they impact on the environment, to the politics of personal style. My parents. is a must listen i've been sitting on it for a while and i'm so happy to share it with you i traveled to hamburg to record this interview at greenpeace germany's hq you're going to meet kirsten broder the activist who for the past eight years has led greenpeace's detox my fashion campaign asking companies to stop polluting waterways with hazardous chemicals in the production of fashion now do you remember when this first launched in 2011 It was major. It made all the headlines because Greenpeace investigators had uncovered a revolting cocktail of toxic chemicals and filthy dyes being tipped into rivers in China and elsewhere. And then they took all these samples of clothing and footwear from brands that sold globally. I think it was from 18 different countries around the world. And they found the same thing, a toxic trail of chemical villains contaminating them. And remember, we wear these clothes on our skin So gross. And of course, what about the people working in these factories and living along these waterways? But out of this terrible news came change. As a result, the industry created something called the ZDHC, which stands for Zero Discharges of Hazardous Chemicals. And the group aimed to eliminate all of this stuff by 2020. And it's happening for a detailed look at who's made the most progress, you can check the show notes on clairepress.com. But you're going to love Kirsten. She actually used to be a science journalist before she joined Greenpeace. But we talk about how she made that transition, what it takes to be an effective activist, think dogged persistence, passion, obviously, but also, she says, a willingness to be unpopular. Kirsten also says you have to be in this for the long game. The detox campaign took years, major pressure and careful negotiation, but it did work. And Kirsten describes what's unfolded as a paradigm shift. She says, companies have come so far, there's no going back. And this is the bit I like best. She also says it proves that it is possible for eco-warriors to win. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about recently with all this climate change stuff. We actually have got a show coming up in two weeks on this subject. So watch out for that overall the message is that activism matters we need these gutsy individuals to rock the boat talking of which i'm doing a spot of boat rocking myself (laughs) i just started an instagram account called greenwash watch false marketers you have been warned (laughs) i'm laughing it's serious stuff you have to follow it kirsten we're sitting here in greenpeace headquarters in
0: hamburg what happens here Yeah, you're sitting in the headquarter of Greenpeace Germany uh, and Greenpeace Germany is uh, leading on uh, the Detox My Fashion campaign. So from this office, we are coordinating all the efforts uh, to detox the industry. You've also
1: got this setup downstairs where kids can come in or anyone, but I think it's really lovely that it's friendly for children. You can come in here and learn about what Greenpeace does and learn about our environment.
0: Yeah, we really try to open up when we moved in this building and to invite people from the outside especially school kids to come in and learn about Greenpeace. Also because we, we wanted to be more visible and more seen in the public.
1: Also you've got a Greenpeace boat and
0: we sat in it. Yes,
1: uh, <laughs> yes we were sitting in the Greenpeace boat. Before we get on to this discussion which is all about detox and fashion and Greenpeace what happens in those Greenpeace boats and why is it significant that you
0: have one? The boat. I think that's a typical, iconic thing for Greenpeace. Yes, Uh, we are really connected to the oceans. We are connected with boats and ships, so we should have one here. (laughs) Love
1: it. Okay, so I want to start with something which every time I give a talk about sustainable fashion, almost every time. If it's a new audience, I will mention at some point that one of the most shocking things about fashion's polluting ways is that you can literally tell the colour of the season in some places by looking in the rivers outside garment factories.
0: Is that true still? I think when we talk about untreated affluents that are colouring local waters, the situation has partly changed to the better. At least when we talk about the chemical intensive dyeing, washing, and printing processes. And definitely compared to 2011 when we started the detox campaign. Because there's that photograph, isn't there, of water coming out of a denim factory, blue. I mean. Yes, it's scary, yeah. And that time when we really started the campaign, I would say the use and release of hazardous chemicals was a black spot for the industry. So it was clear that major brands had no idea what kind of hazardous substances were being used in their supply chains. And they were hiding their toxic trail to some extent. And the problem, besides the colours of the rivers, were, the problem was invisible to the public, I would say. So in fact, it was almost, I'm not saying better,
1: but at least when it was coloured, you could say, here is the problem. But in fact, a lot of these terrible chemical runoffs and pollutions, are, you can't see it. And we can't see it when we're on the other side of the world.
0: Yes, it was easy to hide this toxic trail. And I think one of the major achievements uh, of the Detox Man Fashion Campaign was really to make this problem visible to the outside Mm. work and companies could not shy away any longer.
1: I've just come from the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. In 2012, you were there and you gave a brilliant speech. And here's a quote from you. You said, when it comes to emissions, discharges and toxic pollution, the fashion industry is not very glamorous. When it comes to poisoning water, the world's most precious resource, it has a lot to answer for. It's pretty depressing stuff, Kirsten.
0: Yeah, I was really nervous because uh, I came there to attack brands. I wasn't invited to be nice. And actually, that is a very nice environment where we generally are very polite So you were kind of like, well, you're an activist. You're not there to be polite. Yeah, no, but I think in the end, I think my my very last sentence, I told the industry that if they would move, we would move them. And I was booed. So I... I mean, can we just stop a second
1: just to say, take a moment to think about that. I've just been at this summit. It's a lot of clapping and applause. If someone says something that's slightly PC and everyone feels needs to be said, then you get a big applause. You got booed. Yeah, but to
0: be honest, okay, I'm an activist. Yeah, I'm <laughs> used to be. You bold. like it? Maybe that's true. Yeah, coming I like it. So yes, I <laughs> so uh, usually weird. I, yes, I usually I'm hanging from the rooftop. So yes, no Copenhagen Fashion Summit is a good place to be for an activist. Yeah, and Greenpeace, I have to say, we selected the textile sector as a focus due to their contribution to water pollution. Yeah, and of course, as Greenpeace, we are strong in focusing and putting pressure on major brands. Okay, that's Mm. also true. But the longer term objective by our brand attack was to create pressure to influence government regulation. So we wanted stricter chemical regulation. So uh, we know that we could move the brands maybe faster than regulation. And we thought if major companies and producers could phase out hazardous chemicals in their supply chain by 2020, it would also show that stronger regulation is possible.
1: Mm. Okay, talk us through the Greenpeace detox campaign, because this was like the moment that centred the issue for fashion, starting in 2011. At that time, what kinds of chemicals were used in the fashion industry and to what extent?
0: So when we started the campaign... um We focused on 12 major chemical groups as a priority for elimination. And among them, there were heavy metals like chromium used in tanning processes of leather, phthalates used as softeners, alkyl phenols used for washing and cleaning processes and PFCs. Perfluorinated chemicals to make closing water and stain resistant. And they all have different sinister effects in the environment. They were persistent, not breaking down in the environment. They are bioaccumulating in organisms. They were toxic.
1: And so, just one sec. So, POPs, I've researched this for when I wrote Wardrobe Crisis. That means that they don't break down in the environment, right? You also talked about bioaccumulation. What do we mean
0: when we say that? So, it's adding up. The danger is adding up. I think yeah, it just adding, gets worse and worse. As yeah, you it's getting worse and, and worse, it, yeah. exactly, exactly the point. And I think when we're talking about those chemicals, I think it's important to say that they have no safe levels. Yeah, Because even at low doses, they may be carcinogenic, mutagenic or reprotoxic, so harmful to reproduction. And, and um, a hormone disrupting, all that stuff. Yes, and when we started testing clothing, for instance, some media argued we were just talking about residues and tiny amounts of chemicals. So, yeah, they're there, but don't worry, it's any bit, they're yes. not going to touch your skin and, you know,
1: don't freak out.
0: Yeah, but of course, this is adding up to tons and tons in production and affecting, uh, of course, uh, the health of workers and people in, uh, that are living in the production countries. So... We were really feeling safe with arguing, okay, you should really phase out that. We really need to achieve zero. And zero was really, I think, most brands felt really pushed into unknown territory. Now we are asking them to really phase out all hazardous chemicals and go down to zero discharges. We met a lot of resistance in the very beginning.
1: Let me just stop you there and just go back to actually what the campaign revealed. So there was a big report... And that report centred on two factories in China. So one was, am I saying it right, Mm Yanggu, which is on the Yangtze, and then the Well Dying Company, which is on a tributary of the Pearl River. And I've looked into this stuff. If you're interested in more on rivers in particular, I'd recommend the film River Blue, which is a kind of confronting and horrible but vital picture of what happens when we pollute what is essentially the world's arteries. I mean, we can't live without fresh, clean water.
0: We started with China as a major show floor for the campaign. And what is interesting about about this testing, I think that nobody could shy away anymore because we really showed the direct link between fashion and water pollution. And uh, this kind of investigative work uh, showed really the connection between individual brands, major brands, very famous brands and their exact factories. And we tested their discharge pipes, we tested the closing, and with all those results, I think this was a door opener, really, to start talking to brands. We'll share some links so you can read the report, but essentially you've got
1: activists going there at night, because sometimes the factories are tipping out this stuff after dark because it's easier to dodge the regulations. They're taking samples and they're sending them off to Britain and to the Netherlands, is that right, I think? And having them tested and finding that the water in these rivers is just full of these
0: chemicals. Testing the discharge pipe was just the first step. We took samples of clothing, of footwear, and um, textile companies from all over the world. Among them, the most um, known ones. And I think this was really important for us to open the door to start negotiating with brands.
1: When you say known ones, so some big brands like Adidas, like Nike.
0: Yeah, we started with the big sportswear brands. Uh, Nike, Adidas and Puma. And then we went to the fast fashion sector and added H&M and Uniqlo and Zara. And I think it was always the same picture. The clothing contained residues of hazardous chemicals. It went beyond just
1: calling out the situation.
0: Yeah, true. We really, over the years, we uh, negotiated with a lot of brands and we have a highly skilled, experienced negotiation team talking to brands. And I think over the years something had changed because, of course, brands were scared in the beginning when Greenpeace entered the room. Now we are seen more or less as experts for the issue. So one could say we kept a good relationship with brands. Of course, this can always change, but uh, we really entered the territory of brands and we started talking with them and we saw them as change agents. And now they're moving. It's ongoing. So I think but we reached maybe the point of no return, at least when it comes to detoxing. Yeah. So even if Greenpeace is leaving the show floor and the campaign is ending in 2020, I would say, yes, we can be pretty sure that the paradigm shift that we achieved, that that can never be changed again. So you've released okay. this report. It's
1: really full on and confronting.
0: How did the industry react? So one could say, of course, they were upset because we were we are damaging their reputation. On the other hand, uh, yes, they were taken by surprise, I would say. They didn't expect that green peas would enter the fashion sector. And we started negotiating and talking. And then we got this very first detox commitment from Puma, I'm still very grateful because they put their neck, neck on the line. They were the first ones? Yes, they were the first ones. And then and they said, we're going to commit to your... To the detox commitment, uh, which is more or less an ethical application. It's, they are not signing a contract. But... Then the others followed to suite, I would say. So not only the sportswear brands, but then fast fashion sector, even uh, outdoor brands and even supermarket chains like Tesco's were also uh, selling a lot of clothes. I think one of the major problems was the luxury sector. They were really reluctant to sign a detox commitment. I assume that their customers... Maybe you're not really interested, I don't know. You know what, it's not that they're not interested, but I think they don't know.
1: I think there is a perception that if you're paying a lot for something, it's therefore above this stuff. If you're buying into luxury, of course it's not going to be using harmful chemicals or cheaply produced or having negative impacts on anything because it's luxury. And that
0: is a fallacy, and we know that. True. But when we saw that the luxury sector moved very slowly... We started working with the main suppliers in Italy, in Prato, where all the luxury brand suppliers are concentrated. But there, surely
1: there's no problems there because it's not as unregulated as it is somewhere like China or Mexico or
0: Indonesia? No, I would say the problem is not different in Italy. So for us, it was really important that the Italian suppliers really committed to detox altogether as a region, so to say. It was a major breakthrough for us because then at least the suppliers of the luxury brands, they committed. Now, Kirsten, I have to
1: admit, it's being disingenuous there because I was like, oh, of course, it's not a problem there. But it was a problem there because there was also all these chemicals leaking into the environment in Italy in Veneto.
0: Yeah, true. But its I think the main point is that, and I've seen this again and again, it's not only China or Bangladesh or Indonesia. You see the same stuff in Turkey or in Eastern Europe or somewhere else. So I think it's not limited to, to Bangladesh and the usual suspects, I would say.
1: Mm. Okay, so lots of brands stepped up and said, okay, either we didn't know, thanks for telling us, quite inconvenient, but let's take some action, or we did know, but now we need to manage our risk let's imagine that there is an element of goodwill that people in brands do want to do the right thing if they can. What happened? So an organisation was set up to put a goal in place for zero hazardous chemicals by 2020. Talk us through that.
0: Yeah. In response to the Greenpeace campaign, uh, the industry created the so-called zero discharge of hazardous chemical groups, which is an industry group. And we had some fights with them over the years to prevent them to lower the standard setting minimum requirements for the industry but in the end I would say this EDHC is important for their campaign to help implement commitments of leading companies and drive the industry as a whole.
1: Who did lead it? Which companies have been really proactive in it?
0: Who was proactive? To be honest Claire I miss a lot of proactivity in this industry. Yeah, They always waited till Greenpeace published their reports and then they changed something but Just looking at the brands, and as I said before, we were moving sector by sector. Interestingly, I would say fast fashion was quicker than luxury. Maybe because they just didn't want to add more to their bad reputation. I don't know. But uh, fast fashion was uh, more quickly into phasing out hazardous chemicals. Isn't it interesting? You and I met on a stage in Berlin
1: and we shared that stage with Inditex, which is the parent company for Zara. And it was a big deal to have Greenpeace on the stage with Zara. I think it's not common. No. But also afterwards I said, come on, they're not doing anything, they're Zara. And you said to me, actually, they do do things. They've been doing some good work on trying to clean up water in particular. I think people might be surprised to hear that.
0: Yeah, I think what we did um, after dressing companies and they committed to detox, of course, we, we had this lovely so-called detox catwalk, yeah, which is a nickname for, I would say, a ranking. So uh, what we did, of course, we made brands compete yeah, every year and they've competed against each other. And I have to say, especially fast fashion competed against each other. So. And in the end, Sarah, uh, Inditex, uh, also Uniqlo. Uh based in Japan, and H&M, they rank quite well. When I was researching this before coming to see you, I
1: kept thinking, but why isn't this stuff regulated anyway? I mean, don't we have the Stockholm Convention, for example, that outlaws certain chemicals? Aren't governments in places like China already regulating these chemicals?
0: Yes, of course, some of the chemicals are regulated, but um, some of them are not. So uh, we still have pollution Although we have regulation and we know, we knew when we started the campaign that regulation is very slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the reason why we really put pressure on brands and then uh, started looking at regulation. But now, just looking at the industry as a whole, we need the legislators to step in the game because now we have 80 committed brands. Uh, They are the front runners of the industry, but uh, I think the policymakers, they really need to level the playing field now. Mm.
1: Last year, Greenpeace released a report on progress made by those 80 companies that had signed up to the commitment. The report showed that all of those companies had achieved significant progress. But am I right in saying that they only represent something like 15% of the industry? So there's loads of companies that haven't taken this
0: commitment. True, yes. So we're just talking about the frontrunners now. But if we are now talking about the industry as such, I would say it's much easier for them than eight years ago to detox. And what we can see right now is that the whole industry, to some extent, is getting behind the detox frontrunners. And uh, they are sharing experiences and there is more industry collaboration out there. Hazardous chemicals, they have no place in clothing. They shouldn't be there before
1: we started recording i showed you an instagram post which was of a lurid lime green bikini from fashion nova which is a very cheap brand and it had a californian label in where regulation demands that they do warn you if there's some stuff in there that's nasty Mm. and i'm paraphrasing we'll share a link to it but it's something like may cause harm may cause cancer a lot of people saw that instagram post and started really worrying and saying are you joking (laughs) this is next to my skin
0: mostly they are not labeled in any way You cannot see them and you wear the clothes next to your skin, and you cannot even wash it because when you wash it, then you have all the hazardous chemicals in our precious waterways. So it seems there is no escape. One thing you can do is still see if the companies are detoxed. On the other hand, uh, you could make a different choice. So what about buying sustainable clothes, organic clothing, wearing the uh, certifications guaranteeing you that they are toxic free so you you can make a different choice for sure
1: that dirty laundry report from 2011 there was a bit in there that i read and i had not known it and it said 70 percent of lakes and rivers and reservoirs at that time were polluted in china and half the water was deemed unsafe for human contact i mean it's completely crazy and so confronting presumably some of that has been cleaned up i know that china has certainly turned around some of this stuff when it comes to regulation in the last sort of nine years but kirsten what have you seen i was shocked by reading that as someone who is an activist and on the front line of greenpeace stuff what's the worst thing that you've seen when it comes to water or other pollution
0: i saw a lot of polluted rivers in china for instance also in bangladesh but also in Europe and Turkey, for instance. So um, I was surprised to see that the problem is, of course, not limited to rivers in, in China or Indonesia or Bangladesh or Mexico. I saw also phones on rivers in Mexico. And I have to say, the, I think maybe the scariest thing, of course, is to enter dyeing and printing mills, because this is the really chemical-intensive part of the industry, and talked a lot to people really living nearby to factories and they are affected by pollution they are swimming in rivers they are taking water to the fields. so i was really deeply impressed how they described their the environment and how it changed due to the pollution of the textile factories so this impressed me a lot i think the human stories and what are they telling you that it smells that it's dirty what do they tell you of course it's dirty it's smelling there's less fish in there and of course they didn't know about it so one of the reasons really the detox campaign was talking about chemicals was also to increase in transparency so people needed to know about the chemicals that are used in the factories they are living close to were you a journalist kirsten before you began this world yes i'm a journalist so that's the reason i think i started researching the industry and um I was surprised because I didn't expect that the textile industry would be so dirty, but the major thing I think for for me as a journalist was that I had no answer. I had no answer what to do now, and I couldn't answer the question. So when my readers asked me, okay, what to do now, Kirsten, I had no answer that time.
1: But how did you get where you got then? So tell us your story. Where (laughs) does the activist in Kirsten come from? (laughs)
0: I think I cannot stand really that major brands, for instance, are allowed to waste precious resources and that we cannot do anything about it. So I think it's a lot about injustice and it's a lot I think that I don't like to see that brands are putting profit over planet. So that's one of the reasons why I'm, I've am i chosen to be an environmental activist, although I'm a trained journalist. So. Um, I love journalism because I saw that Greenpeace would be maybe a better choice to really change things, and especially with the Detox My Fashion campaign, I really think that we achieved a major paradigm shift in the industry, so it was worth changing jobs, I would say. Where did you work? I was a trained science journalist, so uh, mostly writing about genetic engineering and nanotechnology and other difficult stuff. And I studied medicine. So that's maybe the reason why I was interested in chemistry as well. But I never wanted to be a doctor. I always wanted to be a journalist, especially a science journalist. But I think at some point it wasn't enough anymore. So that's... I relate. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Well, it's funny. For
1: me, I spent... I've been a fashion journalist for 20 years but in the last five years I've specialised in sustainability and it's given me purpose and I feel like there's a reason why I'm telling the stories I'm telling and my work is driven by a genuine purpose but before that it wasn't before that I was just telling you which skirts were gorgeous which heel height was hot for spring and I always say that in like it's such a it's easy to ridicule that but that's how the industry works if you are a fashion journalist you of course you can look at context and you can look at fashion as political etc but really you're selling clothes i don't do that anymore so i think it can happen that you can pivot and just be looking for purpose and i did that and it sounds like you did it but
0: yeah it's just i think we both try to influence public debates and you can do this um being an activist, working for Greenpeace, and you can do this as a fashion editor as well.
1: Mm. But but but, where did it come from in you? I want to know what you were like as a kid. Did you have a sense of justice as a kid? Were you an environmentalist without knowing that word as a kid? Did you love nature?
0: Yes, of course. I love nature. I love swimming. I love being in the nature. So I think that's something which is deeply rooted in me. But Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hamburg. So, um, but I did a lot of traveling. So I think, and traveling is always influencing me, that I see how people live at in different countries, different regions, and I come back and I'm de- really influenced by talking to people. But Greenpeace, I think, it's not about being just being a nature lover. It's really that we really want to change the world. We are upfront activists. We are trained not to be nice. And I think that's a good thing.
1: There's something about the personal. If you love something, if you grow up loving nature, if you grow up swimming in a clean ocean, if you grow up valuing trees, it's personal. And then when big business or global politics and climate change threatens all that stuff, it gets personal. I feel like a bit of a warrior in that I want to... I said this to Ellen MacArthur. She said, no, that's not why I do this. I'm not trying to protect the oceans. So it's not necessarily how everyone feels, but I do. I feel like a bit it's personal that in this current climate crisis, it's personal to stand up for the thing that you
0: care about. True. I, but I don't, want, I don't want to put too much burden on, uh, on people's shoulders. Mm. I think it's, again, it's about also changing brands and changing politics. Mm. And I think this is something what I really like to do. You're very soft-spoken for
1: an impolite activist,
0: Kirsten. Do you have a steely inner core? I bet you do. I know you do. (laughs) Yes, I I do think so. I would say people would tend to say that, yes, she's not looking like an activist, uh, but I think that's wrong. I think I can be very steely with friends, uh, especially at the negotiation table, Mm. if I don't get what, what I want. So, yes, there is another side... I love the
1: word activist. I've just written a book about awakening the inner activist. Uh, I think we can be activists in different ways in our lives. But what would you say it takes to be a successful activist?
0: It takes a long breath because you have really to stick to your issue for a long time. And even if you don't have success in the first place, uh, then you have to come back again and again till you have achieved the change that you want to see. So, yes... I think it's important to be a long-distance runner. (laughs) I like it.
1: Now I'm asking you a seemingly silly question, but there's a reason. What does
0: an activist or this activist wear? (laughs) This is a good question, and of course I'm prepared. I'm wearing a dress, a blue dress, of one of my beloved uh, fashion labels. It's Frieda Sand from Germany. I don't know that name. Yeah. And uh, I'm wearing uh, one of uh, a jacket from uh, Kings of Indigo, one of my uh, beloved uh, denim brands. And shoes, of course, uh, from nine to five, also a footwear label from Hamburg. Uh, and of course, uh, not using any chrome to tan the leather. So yes, uh, I think um, I'm fully prepared. Um, and some of my friends, they always say that I'm better dressed than before. i did read an
1: article you gave an interview to a magazine um i can't remember how old it is a couple of years ago i think and they'd asked you about consumption and about how you dressed and you said something like that your daughter reckoned you had more clothes than she did now and that part of it was because now you're working in sustainability and sustainable fashion that people were telling you about good things and good labels that you could buy but you actually went on a bit of a shopping detox right
0: yeah, it's right. My daughter told me, okay, mum, now you're buying more and more because it's green and fair. And I, I felt bad because she was right. So I started shrinking my wardrobe again uh, and I did some experiment mostly with lending. So I have still uh, closed organic and fair in my wardrobe. But then I started lending. I get now a box every month. So like from a rental... Yes. From a, a library? Clothing library, yes. And that's fine for me because then I could, uh, I can be creative with my wish to change myself or my clothing, but not buying new stuff. So that's my my personal recipe, I would say, to shrink my wardrobe again. I have to admit, I talked a lot about the successes of the Greenpeace campaign, but there are some challenges and overconsumption is one of the... Biggest challenges, Because we could see that while working on detox, um, I was under the impression after some years that some of the gains were really outstripped by uh, the higher rates of uh, clothing that are produced and consumed. So we needed to address this. And that was the moment, I would say, where we as Greenpeace also addressed overconsumption in our campaign. And we called for timeout for fast fashion. um, Because, of course, if clothing is cheaper and cheaper, you can buy even more. So this is something which is especially true for fast fashion. So we asked the industry to really to slow down. (laughs) How'd that go down? Yeah, they didn't like it, uh, of course, because um, the industry is doing a lot of things and a lot of good projects, but they never enter this territory of deep change they are not slowing down and at the moment there's a lot of talk about circularity and uh, recycling and I think that's a very technocentric answer so I think before we start talking about closing the loop we should really start talking about slowing down the flow of materials and uh, this is something what what we are now addressing in talking about and that I think that's even uh, more difficult for the industry to achieve to really change the business model to address this
1: it's almost impossible I mean everybody with half a brain knows that if you keep making more and more and more and more and more and more fashion with the limited resources it's unsustainable I mean, doubling clothing production between 2000 and 2015, crazy amounts of clothing ending up in landfill. This is all familiar stuff if you listen to this podcast. But the one thing that no brand ever wants to talk about is could we slow down, produce less? How do they do it? Because, you know, if you have shareholders, basically, they're judging you on how much growth you have.
0: I think there are some good examples out there. So maybe they are still niche and not yet mainstream, but... uh, There are some sectors, um, I would say they're doing quite good. Just look at the outdoor sector, for instance, some of the outdoor companies that are now earning money not with just selling new stuff, but lending and repairing and offering second-hand closes over their platforms. So I think they really try to change to some extent, at least to come up with more services around closing than just selling stuff. Mm. And I think that might be a good idea. It's especially, of course, it's easier for the auto industry because they are the people pay more for an outdoor jacket and that they're wearing it longer than it is maybe for the fast fashion industry. But I think, yes, there are some solutions out there. It's almost
1: like we can move the money. You can still have growth in success, but in a different way. So it's not only growth in production. Maybe that's a way a brand can actually start to really think about it in terms of keeping their success, but just moving the money.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a major trend in the industry. They are looking at this and um, they are interested also now to look at, for instance, extending the lifespan of clothing and then try to offer services around this and around durability and quality. I think that's a good step forward and they're still earning money. But they are trying to do it in a different way. Mm. So I don't know if this is really a recipe for the big fast fashion giants, to be honest. But um, yes, as an activist, I would say we need to outweigh maybe also the power of the big brands and support the smaller brands. Mm.
1: Do you imagine an end to fast fashion? I mean, let's remember that it's only relatively recent that there ever was fast fashion.
0: I would say there is anecdotal evidence (laughs) that it's possible to end fast fashion when I look at the public outrage about uh, fashion brands burning stuff. I want to finish up by talking about climate. When I think about
1: Greenpeace, I think about climate. I mean, I think about acting on behalf of nature, full stop. But we're in the middle of a climate crisis. The latest reports coming out of the IPCC are frankly terrifying. On the other hand, you've seen Greta Thunberg taking to the streets everywhere, telling everyone off, love it. What would be your thinking around fashion and climate?
0: I think it's highly underestimated, uh, the importance of fashion consumption on the climate. And one reason is, of course, we are talking a lot of cars. (laughs) We're talking a lot of power plants, coal power plants, for instance. And then uh, we always stop thinking about household consumption and uh, everyday purchasing of uh, goods like fashion. So I think we need to talk about consumption also as Greenpeace. It's a major topic for us and we need to address consumption and encourage people to buy less, to slow down and then of course saving CO2 emissions in the end. Uh, Consumption is maybe um, really an underrated thing So we never talk enough about consumption, also within Greenpeace. Mm. What we will change is in the future, for sure. And what is your
1: message then or call to action for ordinary or everyday activists, citizens?
0: I like the word citizens. What can we all do? Don't just see yourself as a consumer. See yourself as a citizen. I really need People, of course, they. I want them to make different purchasing decisions, but of course, as a Greenpeace activist, I want to see that they are engaged in politics. They are joining our campaigns uh, and uh, putting pressure on politicians. So I want to see both being a consumer and, of course, being a citizen. This is something what I really would like to see. It's about inducing hope and courage, and maybe join other people on the streets now protesting for climate protection. I think that's it's a good way. And never go alone. Just look out for friends and family and, uh, and the community. Then you don't feel that you're just on your own. Oh, it's
1: getting hard. My parents feel that
0: I'm defeated.
1: Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you Montaigne. Because
0: I love you. My